All right, all right, I just ran down the stairs. Uh, I realized I didn't have my headphones, so I'm a little bit out of breath. So 15 seconds and then we will uh, start. How old are you there now, Rob? 31. <gasps> yeah. Old man. Old man, I feel old. Does that make you the, the baby of the bunch then, Mick? Yeah, if you want to put it that way. <laughs> I'd, I'd, I'd seriously advise you not to, though. <laughs> Are you the youngest member of our trio? Does that sound better? Yes. That would be correct. That, that would be correct. <laughs> that would be better. All right. Listen, we I- could say, are you the are you the geriatric of the team? Well, listen, I'll hold my That's hand up true. to that. Absolutely, absolutely. Nah, uh, but you know, they say black don't crack, Roy. So you you <laughs> you know that's the tr- that's the trouble. We, me and Rob just don't have uh, have that advantage. That I mean, this is this is true. But you know what though. Black when you're 45 does get out of breath when you're running up the stairs, though. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. Said Britain is just a small island that no one pays attention to. A former colony won the right to determine its own destiny. Welcome to Mid-Atlantic, the show where we look at the news from one side of the Atlantic from the perspective of the other. And to do that, I have with me Rob Monaco, historian from Connecticut. Say hello, Rob. How are we doing? And from the UK, I have pundit and journalist and all-round nice guy, Mick Wright. Say hello, Mick. Hello. It's been somewhat of a tumultuous fortnight for us here at, in the Mid-Atlantic Studios, which doubles up as uh, my bedroom. We have been nominated for New and Noteworthy on iTunes, not only in the UK, but also in the US and also on Stitcher. First off, I'd like to say a special hi to Victoria Jane on Twitter, who left us a great review for us on iTunes, and also to Travis Smith, who asked about our thoughts on a segment about the possibility of Sharia law in the UK for the next show. Now, Travis, I must admit that I am one of those who think that the talk of Sharia law in the UK is more kind of scaremongering journalism than fact, but I am kind of quite up for talking about the issue of multicultural Britain or kind of more accurately a multicultural England and it's something which I have written about so you can kind of Google me on that. Uh, I do have an article about that on the Huffington Post um, and we will cover it in a show soon. Um, first off, gentlemen, um, how has the last fortnight been treating you? How about you start, starting off for us, Mr. Wright? Very well, very good, thank you. Very busy. Just just, just kind of carving my way through the world as usual, but yeah, very good, thanks. Good, good. And uh, Mr. Monaco, it's your birthday. It is my birthday. Yeah, and I'm doing the show. How about that? Dedicate. Happy birthday, Rob. Yeah, thank you. That's dedication right there, I'll tell you what. Absolutely. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, listeners can go onto our site, which is midatlanticshow.com, to leave voicemails, which we will include in the next show. Uh, you can share us with praise or criticism, whatever. Uh, we have a voicemail from Mary Tutor in Omaha, Nebraska, talking about the wave of territories seeking succession in Europe. Hello, Mid-Atlantic. This is Mary Tudor, and... Uh... I'm doing this for the first time, so bear with me. Benjamin Ashwell from the Talking History podcast sent out a post about the Venetians taking an online vote for independence and about 2.1 million people wanting independence. My question with Scotland and the Crimea, actually Rob Morocco, that article was very good about them going back to their original name, Ataris. 
also uh, Catalonia is uh, wanting independence also so y'all might take a look at this and hey congratulations on the bubble on iTunes and we'll talk to you later bye <sighs> well done Agent Morocco seriously <laughs> call her out on it <laughs> hey she's a great fan of your show though great topic Mary uh, we will get round to this in a show soon as an Italiophile I'm definitely up, up for talking about the issue of Italian regional and national identity so as it's definitely close to my heart we, as I said we will get round to talking about this soon but thank you for your input and thank you for your continuing support of Mid-Atlantic first let's delve into the show and let's talk about Nate Silver in the world of political prognostication, I am Nate Silver! No one beats the buzz of Nate Silver. And at the brand new 538.com headquarters, this is where it all happens. It is. This is our new newsroom. The stat guru and his team have been crunching the numbers. Who will win the Senate? Nate unveiled for us the projections Washington has been waiting for. The most important number to remember, six. That's how many seats Republicans need to take back control of the Senate. Nate Silver, the sporting and political statistician, has been somewhat of a darling for the Democrats after correctly predicting the last two presidential elections with unnerving accuracy. However, after predicting that the Democrats would lose the Senate in 2014, the left are now pouring scorn on his methodology. Are they right to do so? Mr. Monaco, fresh your birthday celebrations. Let's yes. start with you. Yes, well, I may have had a wonderful time, but for the Democrats, I really believe that this is a case of the sourest of grapes. You know, it was wonderful, and Nate Silver was the golden boy, silver boy, um, of the Democratic Party the last two times. And as soon as he says something that they don't agree with, um, I saw yesterday that uh, Harry Reid said that Nate Silver is bad most of the time. And that's because if the Republicans win, he's out of his position. So, of course, he's going to be upset. I really do feel that given what he's done in the past, we need to take him seriously on this. And, and the Republicans probably are going to win by a slight majority. I must admit, uh, this for me kind of sums up why I love American politics and why I kind of despair of it in equal measure. I love the forensic nature of American politics. You know, the very fact that there is a Catholic vote. You know, we don't have that in Britain at all. But then the amount of horse trading in terms of cobbling together supposed coalitions almost feel kind of like anti-politics in a way that it's all just like you know making policy or making speech he's been focused testing everything however mick we briefly we briefly spoke uh previously about nate silver and um you're not so much of a fan are you well, look, I mean, I think predicting uh, the, the Obama, the first Obama win was was pretty impressive, possibly, although he was up against, you know, fairly ropey opposition. Second one, similarly. Uh, I think the thing about Nate, Nate Silver is that uh, he's now running his own site, 538's now it back being its own big site, and he makes a lot of promises and then tends to sort of skew the data to say what he wants it to say. Um, I, you know, yeah, the Democrats criticising him over this are wrong, but it's not a particularly difficult one to guess. You know, midterms, second-term president, very low popularity. Yeah, the Republicans are going to win those midterms. It's, it, I could do that. 
<laughs> and make up some figures. I mean, it isn't that hard a call. But no, but w- when he first kind of sprang to prominence in 2008, it's because he predicted 49 of, of the 50 states. And the one that he got wrong, Indiana, he only missed that. The Democrats won that by one percentage point. So it's not just saying, well, I think Obama's going to win, but it's looking at all those individual races and calling those. And that was pretty impressive, wasn't it, Rob? I think it was extremely impressive. I mean, I remember that was the first time I had ever heard of him. And I found myself glued to his predictions. And and it really was, you know, uncanny, as as you've mentioned. But I've noticed after he was kind of the hero during that race that especially the Democrats have been chipping away every time he says something they disagree with. Like this um, this recent climate change report that he analyzed all the data and he decided that, well, maybe it's not as bad as everybody thinks it's going to be. And they, you know, the outrage, you didn't look at the right data, you didn't look at all the data. You know, it's either he's a charlatan and he's just a data nerd or we need to look at what he's saying seriously. I don't think he's... Option you know, one. Option one. <laughs> All right, go with the charlatan. Why is he a charlatan, Mick? I, I think charlatan's a bit harsh, but I, I think as much as Nate Silver does uh, gets annoyed with people leaning too much on opinion journalism, I think that he has overplayed what data journalism can do. And if you go and look at 538's new site, you'll find that it's kind of, for a start, pretty boring. But otherwise, I just... I, I think he's been he's been built up to such a level that it's hard for him you know there's there's a lot of hubris in what he writes now and I think just because the democrats are wrong in criticizing him on this particular thing doesn't mean that he's uh, some sort of data messiah. Mr. Wright, why don't we have somebody of a kind of a Nate Silver stature in the UK? Why don't we forensically look at constituencies and minorities in the way that the Americans do with their political scene? Uh, because the UK, I don't know, you know, the UK is, is about the size of a few uh, states, you know, it's like two states worth of people, maximum, <laughs> and not even big states. So w- the thing is, our, our, our political pollsters and our, our politicians do, they cut electorate up into many, many different slices, usually not around um, race or religion, but more around... Uh, you know, economic buying power. But we do do that. But, you know, we've got some great data journalists in the UK. Look at James Ball at The the Guardian, who's been in the US for them a bit, but but has done some great stuff for The Guardian in the UK. There's, there's, there are all sorts of people doing that. It's just that we don't tend to make them into superheroes or, or kind of have to build them up into uh, massive names. And, you know, the nature of uh, the size of our political environment is, is smaller, different, kind of more lacking. Well, so really lacking in that kind of level of nuance. So, Mr. Monaco, is there anything that uh, the Democrats can do to stem, uh, or let, uh, let's say, let's to prove Nate Silver wrong come November? Um, yes, in um, in my professional opinion, I, I believe they should all grow a pair, um, or possibly grow larger ones if they, if they need to. I, you know, they really need to stop calling themselves, you know, Republican light. They should really define themselves as a, as a party. What does it mean to be a Democrat nowadays? Are you going to be like Elizabeth Warren? Are you going to get out there and actually, like, say something without kowtowing to, you know, the interests that pay your bills? Or are you going to be more of a an Obama Democrat? You know, well, let me hear what you have to say. Let, let me back down a little bit. Let me let me negotiate. And you're right. You can keep what you want. And, you know, they need to really kind of step it up. They need to stop being Republican light. This debate is about you because it's about your job. Or if not your job, the job of someone else 
that you know. And it's about making sure that the sacrifices that you have made to fix our economy aren't wasted. Because make no mistake, if we cut ourselves off from Europe, from the countries that we trade with more than anyone else, then our hard-won economic recovery will simply be thrown away. Just imagine, though, we weren't debating whether we should stay or leave. Just imagine we were debating whether we should join the European Union. To join a club that will cost us £55 million a day as a membership fee, uh, that will give us thousands of new laws over which our own parliament and you, the electorate, uh, can make no difference. It'll mean an open border to 485 million people from across the whole of Europe, many of them from very poor countries, and they can come here and work and live and settle. And now, the Eurozone's biggest export market in the world. Da -da -da. Da -da 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 can I, Joe? <laughs> 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 I don't know if you need a theme music. I'll do the theme music if you want. Well, listen, I, that's in. Now da, we're going to use da, that. Da, Nick and Nigel talking about stuff. Nigel for... <laughs> <laughs> Continue. Nigel Farage and Nick Clegg clashed in an hour-long debate last week over the UK's membership of the EU. Why, after almost 40 years of membership, is this debate still a hot topic in Britain? Mr Wright over to you uh it's not <laughs> yeah, you, every, every fortnight you just like say you you undermine the premise to my question and and then you laugh but i'm gonna have to press you within a certain demographic within a very small demographic it is uh old people and boring people are are very bothered about this any and and people like nigel farage who are keen to completely ignore the the, the facts and figures or just make up their own which is what he did during the lbc debate i mean it was it was not a bad debate and frankly nick clegg was not very impressive because at least farage is able to seem passionate about what he's going on about clegg just seems like kind of a political android no i don't think most people are that bothered other than in the sense that there's a worry that too many laws come from from the european parliament but the reality is if you look at the figures from our parliament that's not true do we have a problem with immigration not really so why not be part of the eu which gives us massive buying power and uh, negotiating power on the international stage i don't know i think it's uh, a stupid debate mr monaco what is the view of the european union i'm not going to pre press you on what's the american view of the uk's <coughs> membership of it but what is the american view of the european union from your side of the shore well, I mean, I think many people are not even sure if it's a country or not, but there really is sort of this, you know, we know the Europeans are over there. We know that the way we worked with them or fought them or something, one of the other two, but there really is a sort of wondering what is Europe's role in the world nowadays? Are they to back us up? Are they there? Are they our support? Because they're certainly, we don't feel that they are leading anything necessarily. Um, any report, it's sort of like America does this and Europe is either like patting us on the back or saying like, we got you, we got this. You know, for us at least, you know, the way that I see the, the UK in this situation, it, it's sort of like, you know, you guys were the strongest. 
and now that the sort of the sun has set on the uh, the empire, if you will, and you've been asked to join the club, it's sort of like, yeah, but we were the strongest. It should be Britain and then the rest of you guys. Like, instead now it's sort of like, you know, we all have to play by the same rules, but I mean, really, I mean, we were the freaking British Empire, though. Why should we have to? I think that's a bit of an oversimplification, though. There's a that's lot what of, I do. There's a lot of, lot of truth in that. I think there is a strand in British politics which chimes with American politics, which is anti-kind of big government. And we are not that comfortable with overarching super states or with large governments kind of telling us what to do. And I think, Mick, coming back to what you were saying, that this is a, um, a debate which only old people are having, that's my instinctive reaction is to actually to agree with that. But when you look at the YouGov statistics on this, you know, 36% of Britons, which I really think translates into 36% of English people, would want to leave the EU. And what Nigel Farage and UKIP have done is somehow, I don't understand how, and you're, but you're going to tell me, somehow is to get this debate back into the political mainstream. How have they done that? Well, uh, there's two things there. One, 36% is 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 not that is not very many people, and that's 36% in in a poll in which, which I would question the methodology. Uh, YouGov has a panel of people that they speak to, um, and I, I I would you know I would be dubious about about how strong those figures are. There's a lot of other studies to be done. Uh, and the other thing I'd say is, how does UKIP get on the agenda? Because Nigel Farage is broadly more interesting than the other party leaders, so he gets press time, which gets UKIP more attention than its electoral clout justifies. And then why do people support them? Because there are a lot of racist xenophobes in the country and they need someone to speak for them. And Nigel Farage is there to speak for the racist, xenophobic, homophobic contingent. You know what? Again, I think you've been slightly disingenuous there to our Daily Mail reading uh, Brits. My mother's not going to thank me for what I'm about to say, but I had to take my mother to task. Okay. A, few, a few months ago, uh, my mum my was going to the, the dental hospital in Birmingham and she said, oh, I went to the dental hospital and I had to pass three Polish guys who'd obviously slept in, in the subway down there. And when I walked past, I said, hello, madam, how are you today? As they were brushing their teeth. Uh, and I thought, very uneasy. And it's terrible. We, should, we, we, we need to get out of the EU. I had to remind my mother that about 50 years previous to that people would have said the same thing about her no she wasn't sleeping in a subway but I says isn't that the type of enterprising polite people that we want that you know that is there just to get work they couldn't find somewhere to sleep they should have had somewhere to sleep and there they were embarrassed the fact that somebody had actually seen them they were cleaning their teeth trying to get ready for the day but were polite isn't that the type of people we need and I think that what UKIP and the Daily Mail and the right-wing press have been able to do very well is to commandeer this whole notion that immigration bad and jobs are being taken away from, from us hard-working Brits. So much so that immigrants that are just off the boat two generations ago do not see themselves when people say that. Um, coming over to you, Mr. Monaco. In North America, you have NAFTA. I have no idea what the hell NAFTA really does. What is NAFTA? 
No, no, nobody really knows what it does. I mean, there are people who are pretty convinced that it's run by the Illuminati and that, you know, really it's just sort of sliding us into a UN kind of government here. But I mean, I, it's like a free trade agreement. I mean, Canada, Mexico and, and us, we kind of are supposed to all get along and skip around and trade goods. But I mean, really what it is is that it's supposed to say, you know, these three countries, we all have similar goals. We all have similar economic, you know, hopes and dreams. Why should we make it so challenging uh, to allow, you know, sort of the, the, the free market to take place? But really what it comes down to, it's sort of like there's Canada and us high-fiving and looking down at Mexico as in, you know, get your stuff together, Mexico, come on. But actually, you know, what you said earlier, though, with the, um, you know, the, the immigrant kind of aspect of that, I, I think here at least there there's you know what does it mean to be an american it's just you're an american i mean it doesn't matter there's no one thing that an american looks like it's but what does it mean to be british what does it mean to be german what does it mean to be european and, and i i feel that there's a i think mick is right that there's a lot of people who play on you know the the old notions of what it is to be brit and italian a frenchman and you know stuff like that well what do you want do you want a, a world where it's ancient history where if you go to a country you you act and speak and look a certain way or is it the brave new world where you're not defined by where you came from but what you do mm. um mate um by the way f fine speech there mr. thank you, thank you. Thank mr right mr right how can we turn the narrative away from europe being all about people nicking our jobs powers going to brussels and Romanians and Bulgarians landing on our shores. I'm, I'm cautious about what I say here, given that my last two answers have been branded disingenuous. <laughs> so, uh, thanks for that. After it, Rob's powerful speech, my disingenuous answers. Now, um... <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I only say just, just to provoke a reaction. You know that. Well you'll get one um, <laughs> even if you support the YouGov uh, at face value only 36% of people think we should leave the EU that you know that still leaves us with most people believing that the EU is a positive thing and I think broadly it is I mean one of the things that needs to be done with the EU is we need to deal with the fact that the, they have two locations for the parliament there's a lot of pork barrel spending there that needs to be dealt with you know islands where I, I spend most of my time did very well out of basically gaming the EU subsidies uh, in terms of roads so we need to think very carefully about that. But in terms of immigration, we need mainstream politicians to stand up and say immigration is broadly a net positive, whilst also saying, yeah, if you come to Britain, there should be some rules you need to stick to. And there is a culture here and there is an overarching British culture under which many cultures can live. That's what we need to do. That is a fine end. Let's move on to South America. Venezuela is deeply divided and for the past few weeks anti-government protests have been sporadically happening across the country. This week they claimed their first lives on both sides of the debate. The protesters accused the government of corruption and failing to do enough to reduce crime or deal with economic problems. They also believe that the media is being censored. But President Nicolas Maduro has dismissed them as right-wing fascists and coup mongers. So what's going on in Venezuela? I thought that was a really nice end there, Mick. See, I do big you up. I'm only playing. <laughs> 
We can't take the rough and tumble. Up and take it. Up and take it. Right. A wave of anti-government demonstrations has been sweeping through Venezuela since early February. Quite simply, what lies behind the protests in the South American state? Being as geographically you're the closest, Mr. Monaco, let's start with you. I, I will admit that when I was first hearing about the Venezuela, pro I bought in with like hook, line and sinker. I was like, oh, the students are finally, you know, rebelling against Maduro. You know, this guy is is a lunatic. Like he's sleeping in, in um, Hugo's pre uh, mausoleum. He's talking to birds. He's claiming that's Hugo's spirit talking to him. He's a nutcase. He needs to go. And then the first thing I saw was that on Twitter, Anonymous had posted pictures of websites and they were reporting photos that weren't actually from the protest or, or I don't even know if it was even Venezuela that the pictures came from, but that was kind of like something's odd, number one. Then I started finding out more about this Leopoldo Lopez guy, the opposition leader. I listened to this professor give a talk about him. Lopez, this is really interesting. He is the great, great, great grandson of the first president of Venezuela. He is part of the landed elite that wants to do a drastic change from sort of all of those, you know, the Chavez style Gran Colombia kind of vision that Simon Bolivar had where it's like, you know, if, you know, if you, if you get everybody together, you know, South America can rise and kind of, you know, challenge America in terms of, you know, the, the world stage. The more you read about it, the more you really see that the mainstream media is calling it a student protest. But it's not. It's an economic protest. It's the wealthy sort of the right, if you want to call it, are really fighting back against the kind of legacy of Chavez. I, I must admit, I, I completely chime, chime with that view and I, I couldn't argue against that at all. No, 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 you can't. No. That's why so, I said it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, that's, don't, need to, don't need to talk to you then. No, I'm good. I'm going to um, take a nap. But, but we are going to. But we are going to. Mick, if we look at, you know, there has been some 60 people killed in, in these demonstrations. And if we look at the economic plight of Venezuela, it's pretty dire right now. People can't even get toilet paper. Is the world reporting these demonstrations fairly? Is there a way out? Well, they're barely reporting them. It's not make it's not hitting the top of the news here very often. Um, you know what Rob says is right. I mean, opposition leader, the guy in, in government. Uh, it's it's two sides of the same shitty coin, really. If you look at. Um, I don't know why a coin would be shitty, but let's let's just work with that analysis. Uh -huh. But I mean, Venezuela is is 99th um, on the World Justice Report's ranking of countries where you can get a, a fair trial. So it's 99th worldwide, and it's got the worst ranking in Latin America. It's it's it does terribly on the corruptions index. Basically, it's 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 in a state, and it's been in a state for years. And this is just the latest eruption of of, of a very much ongoing problem. So. God knows what can be done there, but certainly the reporting of it is not very good uh, and needs to get better. But, you know, we had guys over there from the left wing of our press involved in the um, election monitoring, banging the drum for Chavez, because the left loves people like Chavez without really thinking, mm, you know, what, what's, what's behind all this stuff. I must admit, I can't help but look at this whole situation without looking at the whole kind of history of South America and Central America and, and see it as, as, as Rob said, that you still have the, uh, the Creoles from, from the days of Spanish colonialization, that their descendants are still really running the show and it's still kind of really large.
large landowners that have not just economic but political power and surely what Chavismo was all about was this kind of convulsing uh, force of for the first time in Venezuelan Venezuelan history that uh, the workers that, that in inverted commas the peasants actually had their hands on power and that to me seems to be the reason for this for the for these protests that because Chavez was such a charismatic figure and the opposition was so fragmented that with his passing they see that Maduro is now kind of vulnerable and they didn't understand the reason why they actually lost that last election when Americans look at South American politics and considering the Americans history in terms of funding right right wing regimes and coups etc Rob is there any nuance in the reporting is it just a case of Chavez no, 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 no. bad and, and you know and no 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 and I gotta and I gotta stop you though because you're implying that we understand the history of what we did in Central America there is no no conversation at the anything beyond the college level of the, what really happened there and it, and it is our darkest deepest secret what we did in Central America uh, you know the overthrowing of governments the banana republics it was really really bad and and that's an understatement how bad it was Chavez was an easy kind of you know boogeyman this larger than life figure he gets out there he starts talking about you know when, when he went to the UN and Bush was there and he says you know something like you know oh my goodness it smells like sulfur probably because the devil was standing here. He's a great boogeyman. And I, I think he, the media especially, uses that as, you know, well, you know, these guys are standing in the way of, of you know, freedom and, you know, oil and whatever it is. But we really do not teach really the, the, the horrors that we did down there. Um, we, it's so much easier to paint Central America as uh, gang infested, you know, jefes running all over the place, uh, you know, the, 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 the Caribbean strongman. It's, it's almost upsetting to, to some extent. And actually, and when we get to the takeaways later, I'm, I'm going to mention something else in Central America too, but not yet. Not yet. All right, just to finish up with Venezuela, Mick, you said that the the left has been was very big and kind of wrote an emotional kind of blank check uh, to Chavez. Just like the Americans have a little bit of a blind spot with their history in South and Central America, does the left have to kind of look at the legacy of, of Chavez now with Maduro and actually say that not everything is right in the state of Venezuela. Yeah, won't though. <laughs> so, I mean, I'd, I'd love them to, but, but they won't because it, often I, I, I find what tends to happen and, and look, you know, Chavez certainly, you know, had, had some positives about him and initially anyway did, did some good things there. But I think that what tends to happen with the left, particularly the left in the UK, is if there's anyone who really doesn't like the, the Prime Minister of the UK and the President of the United States, the left are going to like them because that's kind of what they do. It's we're bad. We should feel bad for everything we've done, and these guys should feel, uh, you know, are, are justified. And in some respects, Rob's right, you know, our, our history in South America is not great either. I'm always a bit conscious that it's so easy to present the US and the UK and, and our other allies as, as the bad guys, um, and it's always more complicated than that. 
Now it's our takeaways of the week. I'm just going to start first. My takeaway of the week is that calories are bad. Don't understand the reason why everything that tastes nice is full of them, with the exception of vodka. Everything that tastes bad has none. I am in a battle against tasty food, which is full of calories because it's made making me into a lardy ass. That is my takeaway of the week. Calories are just the devil's spawn. I don't understand them. They're evil. Why is this such a thing? I don't understand why these big food companies don't sort it out so we can have tasty food that has no calories. That's my takeaway. Mr. Wright, how about yours? Uh, my takeaway is uh, another podcast that you should listen to called Tell the Bartender, um, which is a, uh, a really a great uh, storytelling podcast uh, done by Catherine Heller, and she shout out Mid-Atlantic on Ooh. the beginning of the latest episode, episode oh. 31 and 9-11 story. Uh, so... I'm just reciprocating, but also I've been a listener for some time. And uh, you should listen and follow Catherine on Twitter. She's SPK Heller. So, uh, yeah, that's that's my takeaway. Will do. Will do. Uh, Mr. Monaco, what's your takeaway of the week? My takeaway, I'm following up with the Central American theme right now. And I was just going to mention that El Salvador just had a recent election. And El Salvador is sort of a country that, you know, nobody even remembers it even exists there. But it does. It does. And they just had an election and they just elected a uh, former guerrilla who uh, really fought against um, the government that we sort of, you know, were propping up and stuff like that. Is El Salvador going to be the next Venezuela? Are they going to be sort of like leading um, the country into sort of this new glorious generation? It remains to be seen. Um, but I think it's interesting that the news is starting to kind of pick up on this country. Cool. And that's my takeaway. Thank you. Right, that has been Mid-Atlantic Show 6. Don't forget you can follow us uh, individually on Twitter. You can follow uh, Mick Wright. How do they follow you, Mick? Tap Broken Bottle Boy. And how about you, Mr. Monaco? At Podcast History. And you can follow me. I'm at Royfield, spelled R-O-I-F-I-E-L-D. Or also you can follow Mid-Atlantic Show. You can also, as we said at the start of the show leave a voicemail message for us by going onto our website which is midatlanticshow.com hitting the grey tab over on the right and that gives you about a minute or so to tell us whether you love us hate us or give us any pointers on things maybe that we should be discussing so that's midatlanticshow.com you can also follow us on facebook now for weeks i've been saying our facebook group but notes our facebook page so go onto facebook type in midatlantic and we do have a page which is just on to, to kind of to take off uh, there is a little bit of a debate there we also do things like we tell people beforehand the things that we're going to discuss so come and join us over on facebook that has been mid-atlantic see you all again in 14 days time <laughs>